and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 61, recorded on July 8th, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you from the Linux Academy offices. I've commandeered one of their recording booths to get into some news with you. And let's start with the huge story that everyone is still talking about all week long. SUSE has been acquired. Yes, for $2.5 billion by a company called EQT. Yeah, EQT is buying them from Microfocus, who's owned them for a little bit now. And the language around the whole announcement is super positive. What I call an acquisition, they're calling a partnership. And it sounds like EQT is interested in really kind of keeping things the way they are with SUSE, only doubling down on perhaps some talent and hiring and investing in certain areas that they think SUSE is primed to grow. I'm not sure what those areas are. They don't really call those out. But the language suggests that this is a really positive move for SUSE. It's funny that when I think about SUSE, I don't think about a, a kind of fashionable distro that it's it's not kind of in the news for exciting developments very often. But this kind of shows that it must be used by a lot of enterprises and people who are actually paying them and making them worth $2.5 billion. Because that is a lot of money. I mean, okay, it's not Red Hat money, but it does show that they must be profitable, they must be growing, and things must be chugging along nicely there. It doesn't make it any more exciting as a, a distro, and OpenSUSE never particularly excites me either, but it, it must be doing well, and that's got to be good for open source generally, hasn't it? Yeah, you know, I think I mostly agree, Joe. That's a pretty positive spin on that. I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> uh, and I'll tell you where that uh, figure comes from. So it's like uh, the final figure is $2.35 billion, and that is 26.7 times the adjusted operating profit of the SUSE software unit from Microfocus. That's according to Microfocus in an interview in Reuters. So that's a pretty big adjustment. In some industries, you might see three times the operating pr profit. Sometimes you see uh, something much larger if there is an assumed potential. And so you, you kind of hedge on the potential of the business. So that could be where the 26.7 times what their profit was. That's how they're getting to 2.535 billion. And it could suggest what you're saying, that there is some direction they're going. There is an obvious trajectory of growth here that they're seeing when they look at all of the numbers. And so that's why the figure could be so high. And yeah, that is a good sign for open source and free software. I wonder to what extent Red Hat doing so well lately and Canonical shaping up to try and do an IPO or get bought or whatever. I wonder to what extent all of that had a bearing on this valuation because it's not just SUSE as a, an individual company. It's the whole industry is going that way. And as we move towards more automation and Internet of Things devices, it all needs a back end. It all needs servers. And that is all running Linux. And so it's all, almost like this rising tide uh, lifts all ships idea, isn't it? And so I, I wonder if part of the growth projection is just based on the industry in general growing. 
Yeah, I might know the name for that rising tide, Joe. I think it's called Kubernetes. And SUSE earlier this year really started putting their marketing effort behind their initiatives around Kubernetes. And they've launched several platforms, including the SUSE OpenStack Cloud, the SUSE Cloud Application Platform, and the SUSE CAS Platform, which is a certified Kubernetes software distribution. And when they got in that game and then started making hype about it around April, I think that probably is a likely source of a lot of their future potential. The Kubernetes hype is strong. If they would have called it the SUSE Kubernetes blockchain distribution, th- that figure <laughs> may have been 80 times. Yeah. Well, something that surely there's only a positive spin to be put on is Gnome are hiring. Thanks to the cash injection that they got uh, a few weeks ago, now they're going to spend that on hiring some new personnel. Yeah, four new posts. And yes, we'll have a link to the job opening page in the show notes, linuxactionnews.com slash 61. Now, the foundation is currently recruiting four positions, development coordinator, program coordinator, a sysadmin, and one developer, one GTK plus core developer. But didn't they get a million dollars? So does that mean they're paying uh, 250000 each for these positions? Because if they are, I'm in. <laughs> Something tells me it doesn't uh, quite work as cleanly as that, but it's probably <laughs> it's somewhere in the range. I mean, it depends on where you hire. You know, a, a competent developer or um, sysadmin or, or development coordinator in the West Coast or East Coast area of the United States, that's a, that's a fairly well-paid position, o- over probably 130 if uh, you do it right, and maybe more than that, depending in what area of California you work. But really, I know, they could hire anywhere in the world. So I guess it's just sort of up to where they want to hire from. It's interesting that this development coordinator, under the very brief description of it, says that uh, this will ensure that we receive sufficient funds to continue our work delivering free software. So that job is basically get us some more money so we can hire some more people. It's the virtuous circle. It is interesting that they're ramping up on a couple of key admin positions, the development coordinator and the program coordinator. The development coordinator ensures that they receive sufficient funds to continue work on delivering free software. That's that's an interesting description for a development coordinator. And then the program coordinator frees up time for those involved in organizational, administrative, and logical problems. So a program coordinator kind of sounds like an office admin type position, but in this case, because they're a GNOME foundation making software, it's called a program coordinator. Those two admin positions, though, sound like they're meant to sort of free up resources within the foundation, people that are already overtaxed, perhaps wearing too many hats. That's an interesting direction to go and often a good move. It sounds like on the surface, oh, they're just hiring a bunch of more admin work. But a lot of times you get people that have been working, have a lot of knowledge about the project or the organizational structure, and they sort of get overtaxed. They're doing too many things. And if you can free up some of their time, make them more efficient, it's generally good for the project as a whole. So this overall looks like a pretty good spread. And obviously getting a sysadmin in there will help take off some of the load of managing the infrastructure, which I'm a big fan of. And they specifically call out FlatHub in here. And they're going to say it's going to need more support soon. Yeah, it's not only FlatHub that that sysadmin is going to be helping out with. There's also NextCloud and GitLab. So whoever gets the job is going to be busy. Yeah, like I said at the start of the story, we do have the link to the positions page if you want to take a look at the requirements and some of the other details. One thing I just might note, uh, I believe these are all one-year contracts initially. They could continue on, obviously. You think about the position of the foundation and the uncertainty of future funding, that 
kind of makes sense. One-year contracts right now, but they look like decent gigs, and they say competitive salary, flexible working, generous paid time off, and travel allowances as well as health care. Might be worth checking out, linuxactionnews.com slash 61. Well, something else that's definitely worth checking out is GNU Geeks, G-U-I-X, which is their transactional package manager, and uh, Geeks SD, which is their distro. They don't mention Linux very much, surprise, surprise, with it being GNU. They're quite keen to call it a GNU distribution, but it does have the Linux kernel as well, albeit the Libra version. But 0.15 has been released, and they talk about it being the last 0 point something release, or at least one of the last 0 point something releases. So they're gearing up for a 1.0. And why this caught my eye is that Geeks has been solving a lot of problems with the transactional updates that now a lot of distributions are starting to solve in different ways. So you can think of Geeks as really in two projects in a way. Um, They're a transactional package manager, but they're a distro as well. But they do have instructions for overlaying Geeks on top of your own distro, even getting it all set up with your boot environment and going as far as you might possibly want. And one of the things that's kind of neat about that is then all of a sudden you get transactional upgrades, which means if it doesn't work, you go right back, which includes rollbacks, unprivileged package management. And I'll pause there. If you recall recently, I was trying out the AWS workspace. It has very limited software selection now with their new Linux 2. It's it's very much uh, intended for certain types of workloads. And if you're outside that, you kind of are out of luck. This would give me everything I'm looking for. I could install things like Chromium. I could even install the GNOME desktop with the Geeks Package Manager on top of my existing distribution. And with rollbacks and unprivileged management, i.e. I don't have to be root, that means I could get pretty far on a virtual instance or on just a workstation where I don't have root access. It also has per-user profile support and garbage collection. It's really pulling in low-level mechanisms from one of my favorite package managers of all time, Nix. So that's what's so cool about it. And you can try it out as a distro, which is a pretty hardcore installation process. (laughs) It drops you to a command prompt. And then just says, hey, if you don't know what to do, hit Alt-F2. Go over to your other TTY and read the instructions and then come back over and type the commands here at the root prompt that you want done. So that's kind of a fun installation process if you know what you're getting into. Or you could abuse an existing installation and try to lay this thing on top of it. Both are super geeky and pretty cool. Why do you think that it's not more popular than it is then, Geeks? Because technically it is amazing, but you don't seem to hear about it. It's not implemented in other distros. And, you know, it it just seems to have flown under the radar somehow. It's definitely got to be in part because it's kind of a bit of an afternoon to get it up and going. I mean, maybe a couple of hours if uh, you're lucky. And that's kind of a barrier to entry. But on top of that, it's solving a problem that there's solutions for. It's the Betamax VHS problem in our modern era. I can get absolutely everything I need these days from Docker, FlatHub, Snap Packages, and insert various other methods to get software. Like, when have you really been totally out of luck these days? Like, I used to run Arch as a daily driver just because the AUR was a surefire, guaranteed way for me to get software. But for this entire 2018 year so far, I've been having no problem on an Ubuntu LTS Ubuntu-based desktop, because I can get software different ways now that are good enough. They're not ideal, 
but they're good enough. And that's always been all the market really needs. And there was a time where I couldn't even live on an LTS. It just drove me crazy. I became known as a rolling release guy. And that was simply because of software availability. I, I haven't had that problem for a while now. And I think in a way, Geeks is solving a problem that other things that are kind of good enough already solve. And it kind of took an edge case for me to really go, oh, I could use this. And that's when I'm using AWS's workspace as a daily driver. And I got to admit, that's, a, that's an edge case scenario there. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. Linux Academy is a platform to learn more about Linux and all of the different ways you can use it that help out the resume too. AWS, Azure, OpenStack, or the essentials of Linux itself. Basically, if it can run Linux or Linux runs on it, Linux Academy has courseware about it. And in July, they have their largest content launch in history. That's why I'm down here at their office, to help them celebrate the launch, because not only do I love a good party, but I'm going to be on their Tuesday stream while they're launching a bunch of stuff. I'm very excited about this, and so are they. I've been watching the company really as a, as a whole celebrate this massive achievement, and you can get started right now for seven days absolutely free when you go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. But you know what? I'll also mention this. They have a free community plan that they just recently added a bunch of new content to as well. linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. You go there to support the show, and then you can sign up for a free seven-day trial, get access to everything, downloadable content, audio guides. I mean, it's, it's awesome. Or try out the community section. Tons of great content in there, and it doesn't cost you a dime. linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Another week, another Android security story. This time, it turns out that pretty much most Android apps can record your screen and then send that off to various third parties. Yeah, this is a massive study that is being billed as the first large-scale empirical study of media permissions and leaks from Android apps. And the damning thing here is it isn't necessarily the apps that you love, but the third-party libraries that they're using. And this impacts over 89% of apps in the Google Play Store that make use of an API that requests screen capture or recording. And the user is oblivious as it evades the Android permissions framework entirely. Now, this whole study has been done by several different large universities, and they found that users and app developers who purportedly set controlled permissions are unaware that these third-party libraries are doing screen capture and even screen recording in some cases. And in the words of the researchers, they said the Android permission model's flawed because it's coarse-grained and it's incomplete. It's a pretty damning study because you don't really ever think about the libraries that these apps might be depending on. You trust the app developer, the core developer, but you have no idea what libraries they're bundling underneath that app. Well, no doubt Google will um, fix this in the next version of Android, and then everyone's going to get that instantly. So problem solved, right? <laughs> yeah, so ask yourself... Um, what is this data being used for? What is this data being used for? Even if it's not being used by Google directly to sell Google AdWords, it's got to be used for advertising. That's what all these companies are trying to do with this data is sell you better ads. And who are they probably buying those ads from? At least in part, Google. So it's not really surprising that the Android security model seems to allow things like this over and over again. I'm not saying Google's intentionally building Android like this. I'm just saying when an advertising company is making an operating system, I'm not super surprised these things keep happening. 
You just want to find any excuse to justify your iPhone, don't you? <laughs> I tried not to bring up iOS at all. For all I know, this library problem could affect iOS. You know, I mean, it's, it's possible. Well, they said they're going to move on to that next iOS and try and find whether it's the same problem there or whether that's got other problems, which it might do. But I do take your point that it seems less likely, doesn't it? It seems less likely that a company who is out to sell you ridiculously expensive hardware as a business model is going to then spy on you and gather data so that they can sell ads because that's it, they're not selling ads like Google is. So I, I'm starting to come round to the logic of choosing iOS, but it's not something I would ever do, I don't suppose. But how many stories like this about Android being terrible with security is it going to take? That's why I think the top comment on the article we'll link to it talks about Purism's phone, the, the Librem 5, and how important it is that we get something like that. I mean, that commenter gets shot down instantly by someone saying that, you know, well, that's not available right now and, you know, I'm not going to spend $600 on something that's potentially vaporware or whatever. But it just seems so important to me that we get a completely free software mobile OS that just doesn't have these problems. Or if these problems are found, then they can be fixed by the community. I've always felt like the iOS device is a stopgap device for me. Because it's it's not an ideal solution itself. But it seems like the intention of the company behind it is to sell hardware, not to sell ads. And so that is where I start with that. Because like when I'm traveling, I'm out and about, I'm using apps like Lyft or Uber and Google Maps. And I'm getting around because I don't know where I'm at. Like this morning I had to nav to a grocery store and then I had to navigate here to the Linux Academy office. So I need that tier of applications because of my job, I guess. And so... I couldn't just switch whole hog to something like a, a Librem running pure OS, but if it had compromises maybe allowed me to run Android apps, then I'd be willing to make a pretty big set of compromises to have a truly free platform, whatever it is. It just needs to have decent hardware that's fast so my phone isn't frustrating to use and an operating system I can trust. I've always kind of felt like my best option might be to go with an Android ROM on a high-end Pixel device that is de-Googleified. And that's always kind of an option I'm keeping an eye out for. Well, up until recently, you could have used Copperhead OS, but uh, we reported on that a few weeks ago that things have gone a bit wrong there. But thankfully, there's a fork of it, which has appeared, called Rattlesnake OS. Yeah, this is really taking independence to a next level because part of what the Rattlesnake OS promises is over-the-air updates that you build and verify yourself using a fully automated AWS infrastructure. So it spins up using AWS Lambda and it provisions EC2 spot instances that build Rattlesnake OS, upload the build artifacts to S3, and then your phone updates over the air using your own entire trusted chain of systems that you have management and ownership over, as much as you can own somebody else's computer in the cloud. So this is clearly not aimed at end users, is it? It's very much aimed at the enterprise. I, I don't know, man, but I love it. I think it's aimed at me. It's got support for the Google Pixel XL and the Pixel 2 XL and the standard Pixel uh, and untested support, quote-unquote, for the Pixel 2 standard. Uh, that is the range of hardware I was just thinking about. It comes with F-Droid pre-installed, a Chromium browser with WebView patches that are awesome because they block ads and enhance privacy, and it's using verified boot to make sure it's using your own official builds from your own systems. No Google apps are pre-installed at all. The whole infrastructure just costs a few dollars a month to maintain, and you have a whole chain of ownership there. Well, I must say that does sound appealing, 
but as someone who flashes Google apps every time I install Lineage on a device, I don't know, there's just certain Google apps that I'm tied to. And so I don't think this would be for me, but um, I know a few people who run google and this extra level of security seems pretty appealing. This is pretty neat. I'm really impressed by the project. Just the, the whole automated approach to building it on your own infrastructure. You got to figure if you could figure out what that build environment was, you may be able to set it up on a local box. I don't think there's anything really specific to AWS other than the script that he created to automate the whole thing uses AWS and makes the process super fast and makes the download to your phone really fast. The trickiest part is getting started. You've got to get the initial setup on AWS, get all the things connected, and you've got to have the initial deployment on your phone. But after you successfully flash your device, you'll be running Rattlesnake OS, and future updates happen through your own built-in OTA updater, which means if the project goes AWOL, if people walk away with the GitHub, you still have your own build environment. As long as that source code is getting created, you can still do your own verification. Just doesn't solve the fact that it's Android, but it does solve a lot of other problems that we run into with projects like this. We'll have a link, again, in the show notes. Okay, well, let's end with a quick security PSA, and that is if you've been using the browser extension Stylish, stop doing that immediately because that has been stealing people's browsing history. Yeah, it looks like since January of 2017 in Chromium uh, and then March of 2018 in Firefox is when this started happening. And if you followed guides online like I did to make Firefox look really slick on Gnome Shell, it uses Stylish to accomplish that. So you may have installed it ages ago and not even realized. So could you go double-check your extensions? The short version of it is Stylish's developer sold it a while ago. It's now owned by a company called SimilarWeb, and they actually promote market solutions to see all of your competitors' traffic amongst one of its areas of interest and strengths on its website. This is just what they do. So they bought Stylish, and you can actually just look at the traffic, and you will see large chunks of data being sent to api.userstyles.org, sucking up your bandwidth and spying on everywhere you go. So go rip that sucker out of your browser. But the good news is there's a fork called Stylus, which doesn't have any of this nasty stuff in it. So you can continue to have the same functionality, but safe in the knowledge that all your browsing history isn't being sent to someone else. I love open source. That is awesome. Rattlesnake OS forks from Cobberhead OS, and we have Stylus, which is a fork of Stylish. You got to love it. When, uh, when some company closes the window, open source opens the door. I'm not sure. But whatever the situation is, we'll report on it every single week. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. And you can support the entire network at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash jupitersignal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later.